Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. I want to emphasize that people can still grow muscle on a ketogenic diet. It just won't happen at an optimal rate and, and to a maximal degree. So, you know, you'll, you'll get people, you'll get people who'll hear me say that and then go, ah, I've been on keto for years. I'm jacked, you know? Well, okay, cool. But if somebody came to me and said, Hey, my, my main goal is to gain as much muscle as possible by let's say in six months or next year or, or whatever it is, then definitely ketogenic dieting is not going to be the optimal way to go about it. Hey, hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am speaking to Alan Aragon, round two. Uh, the first time that Alan came on the show, we talked, I actually got to two questions of my several pages of notes, so had to have him back on. If you don't know who Alan is, he is a nutrition researcher and educator with over 30 years of success in the field. He is known as one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry's movement towards evidence-based information. Notable clients include Stone Cold Steve Austin, Derek Fisher, and Pete Sampras. He writes a monthly research review, the AARR, of which I might add, I am a subscriber. Fantastic product, uh, which provides cutting-edge theoretical and practical information. Uh, his work has been published in popular magazines as well as the peer-reviewed scientific literatures. He's co-authored Nutrition uh, Nutrient Timing Revisited, the most viewed article in the history of the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. And he's also the lead author on the ISSN Position Stand on Diets and Body Composition. Alan maintains a private practice designing programs for recreational and professional athletes alike. So last time he came on, we talked about protein. This time he came on, we talked about carbohydrates, fat, creatine, artificial sweeteners, and processed foods and intermittent fasting. With carbs, we talked about carb timing. We talked about the minimum amount of carbs to maximize muscle hypertrophy. Uh, we talked about creatine. So he had recently published a meta-analysis. We talked about the effect of creatine on muscle hypertrophy. We talked about how to saturate the muscle with creatine, non-responders to creatine. We talked about ultra-processed foods. Where do they fit in? Um, we talked about seed oils, artificial sweeteners, intermittent fasting. Should we train fasted or fed? The age-old debate maybe not age old, but seems like that's the most common question that I am always asked. And we talked about the different mechanisms. So if you're training fasted or fed, what happens? Your beta oxidation or your fat oxidation. Uh, do you burn more fat when you are training fasted or do you burn more fat overall when you're training fed? And we answer those questions in the show. This is a fabulous part two. There is definitely a part three uh, coming up with Alan, but Please share this podcast far and wide. If you feel it deserves a five-star rating on iTunes or your, you know, your most precious asset, your time and a review of the podcast, I would most humbly appreciate it. I read all the reviews, the good, the bad, the ugly. And so your reviews really help me and the podcast grow and find more Bettys around the world, creating that Betty army. 
as I like to say. Um, so without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Alan Aragon. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Alan Aragon, number two, round two with you. I'm so happy to have you back. Thank you so much for having me back, Stephanie. It's a real privilege. How about privilege? Yes, (laughs) it's a privilege for me too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I recognize it is early in the morning, your time, and I appreciate you you waking up to speak to me um, on the East Coast this morning. And, you know, last time you were on the show, I only got through, as I was saying, two questions of the several pages of notes. So I wanted you back on. And we only really talked about protein. We only really talked about the acute anabolic window, uh, protein timing. We talked about, um, uh, we talked about, you know, minimum protein requirements, whether you're sedentary or you're an athlete. And there's two other macros that I wanted to potentially explore with you as well. I wanted to talk about carbohydrates, fat. I know that you've just published, um, 
uh, a meta-analysis on creatine, which I get asked about a lot. So we'll see how far we get. There might be a part three. Yes. Um, so let's start with, let's start with carbohydrates. Um, as I was saying to you in the pre-chat, a lot of women who listen to the show, I think have, uh, and I did for years as well. So in all, you know, transparent, I sort of came up through the keto world because I'm very interested in brain metabolism. I'm very interested in how the ketogenic diet can, um, alter things like mood and it can be a really quick weight. It can be a really quick start for weight loss for many people. Mm-hmm. And so there was a long time where I, I too was afraid of carbohydrates. And I think that there's a lot of women that have, um, we'll say, you know, a less than optimal um, uh, relationship with it. So can we first start by talking about what the relationship is in terms of muscle growth and carbohydrates? So one of the things we talk about is carbohydrates when we are ingesting them alongside protein will help with net muscle protein will reduce net muscle protein breakdown. And so if you're Mm. combining that with a protein source, let's say a whey protein after your workout or something, you have this MPS and then you have this um, inhibition of muscle protein breakdown. So your net net is kind of hopefully your net net is that you're, you have more muscle growing or being created than you have breaking down. So if you are someone who is determined to economize your carbohydrate uh, intake. What is the minimum amount of carbs that you would want to ingest to maximize in order to maximize muscle hypertrophy? Okay. So we don't know that answer definitively. Um, and that question hasn't been investigated systematically where we do some sort of a dose response investigation to see where, where is that threshold where gains in muscular size start getting compromised. And so that research has never been done, but there has been quite a a lot of research comparing flat out keto, which is, as you know, lower than 50 grams of carbs a day versus a high carb model, which is typically, you know, anywhere from 45, 50 ish percent of the diet and, and, and up. And so, um, observationally, there's a, a few publications that have speculated that the low end is about three grams per kilogram of body weight. And we're talking about carbohydrate dosing that would still, still support muscle hypertrophy or even possibly, you know, maximize it. But that that's the theoretical lower end is three grams per kilogram of body weight, which is roughly about like one point what is that 1.5 1.7ish <laughs> grams per per pound of body weight the reason why that is is because there is a performance element that carbohydrate helps out with lifting capacity and there's also a resting glycogen element that helps with just the the volume that your muscle sits at since for every gram of glycogen that we store in the muscle there's three to four grams of water that are stored along with it. And so people who are chronically undercarbing are going to carry a significantly less glycogen at, at the muscular level. So um, there's And run the risk of elements. being dehydrated as well. That's the other thing. They're, they're also often mm. dehydrated, which is why salt, like, you know, taking in salt is very important mm. for that population. The, yeah. the main things, rest, resting glycogen levels and performance are and lifting performance are the the main mechanisms that would separate 
a ketogenic model from a, um, I guess, a, a conventional or higher carb type of model. And we know that from a repetition, a replication of studies showing exactly that, that lifting performance, lifting capacity is compromised as a result of ketogenic dieting. And I want to emphasize that people can still grow muscle on a ketogenic diet. It just won't happen at an optimal rate and, and to a maximal degree. So, you know, you'll, you'll get people, you'll get people who'll hear me say that and then go, ah, I've been on keto for years. I'm jacked, you know? Well, okay, cool. But if somebody came to me and said, Hey, my, my main goal is to gain as much muscle as possible by let's say in six months or next year or, or whatever it is, then definitely ketogenic dieting is not going to be the optimal way to go about it. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that because I, um, I've had, there was a, I'm thinking of one uh, client in particular who was furious with me that I had suggested, um, you know, I'd put together a meal plan and a fitness program for her because her main goal was putting on muscle. So we had a higher, pro it was about a 40, 40, 20. So it was about 40% of her total calories were coming from protein. About 40% of her total calories were coming from carbohydrates. And then it was sort of a moderate to low, say, uh, fat, um, you know, whatever the fill is there, 20% of, of the rest of her calories were coming from fat. And because she sort of knows that, you know, a lot, I, I've talked a lot about the ketogenic diet for women. Um, she was just furious with me and thought that, uh, you know, I was, you know, pulling the wool over her eyes or something, you know, it was some sort of scam or something like that. And I really want to work to dismantle some of the um, fear that I think a lot of, I see a lot of women, I'm sure it's across the board, but I'm, I can draw on my own experience around fear around consuming carbohydrates for fear of weight gain. And part of it, you know, what you just mentioned around the three to four mo molecules of water being stored alongside uh, with glycogen in that sort of lattice, you know, when it's, when it's stored in that lattice like um, structure is like easy come easy go, right? It's like, you know, the, you gain some water weight and it's like, and then you go and you have a really great lifting session. Um, and then you're, you know, the, the water or the sweat or whatever, uh, the, the glycogen utilization, you're going to be able to completely get rid of that. So I think that there's, um, there's a, there's a big fear that I'm that I'm trying to dismantle, and so when we're, when we're talking about carbohydrate timing, let's say, um, what are your thoughts on you know there's some people who front load, you know there's people who talk about let's say circadian rhythms and being more insulin sensitive in the morning, so honoring that honoring that um, uh, you know circadian rhythm and having most of your carbohydrates let's say front loaded to the front load of the day there's back loading carbohydrates there's sort of a even distribution of carbohydrates through the day where do you fall uh do you have a particular preference or is there something that you've noticed that works better for if if the goal like if we're defining the goal as putting on as much muscle as we can is it as important to distribute carbohydrates through the day as it is protein the short answer to that is no, it's not as important. Um, but there's definitely some nuance to that to cover. And before I do that, I wanted to mention uh, about carbohydrates and um, muscle hypertrophy, muscle mass. Um, there is a, a really cool uh, observational study by Andrew Chappelle and colleagues. It's a 2018 study. And he basically examined the the habits of the top five placing natural 
bodybuilders in the men's and the women's division at the elite level, so the national level, in natural bodybuilding competition. And um, the their carbohydrate intake was relatively high, um, the, the people who placed in the top five. So it was like four to five grams per kilogram of body weight. So it was at least about double your body weight in pounds when we're talking about grams of carbohydrate. And their their fat intake was was really low. It was like a like a third of a gram per pound. Um, and this is both the the men and the women placing in the top five. And so there is definitely some wisdom to be gleaned from how the elite with everything on the line, with top placings on the line. There's something to be learned from how they do it. And if ketogenic dieting was not a risk for um, coming in off or coming in flat or stringy or just not full and shrink wrapped and as lean and hard and full as possible, then they'd we'd be seeing some ketogenic dieting in there with the elite. Um, and we don't, we just, we don't see it. <laughs> so um, now, now there are some people who do a cyclical, a cyclical ketogenic uh, dieting type of model, but um, when it comes down to it, the average about two grams of, uh, of uh, carbohydrate per pound of body weight um, during prep, during prep. And this is because they want to maximize the retention of muscle tissue while they're losing fat and they've been on a calorie deficit for months. And so, yeah. Okay. So I wanted to, I wanted to get that statistic Thank out you. of the way first. So when people yeah, think great. about the people show up as lean as possible, like as lean as you can get down to essential body fat levels right before death, even they're not ketoing. Okay. So, <laughs> and this is not to say that keto is a, um, not a good tool. Um, and this is not to say that keto doesn't work for a, a lot of people because there's a lot of ways that keto does work. But when we're talking about maximizing muscle mass and retention, it's just, just not optimal for that. Yeah. So, okay. Which is um, why the, the goal is question. important. Yeah. Why mm. defining the goal is very important. So if it's just to shed water weight or to shed weight really quickly, the ketogenic diet does really well with that. But to your point, if the goal is muscle, you know, putting on as much lean muscle mass as possible long-term, uh, and this is something I often say, like you can't stay in keto land forever. You can kind of get there, quick start, big dopaminergic rush, you feel motivated, you stick to it, and then we can move out of it. And then we can move into something that's a bit more balanced. Right, right. So the next question that you asked me about carb uh, positioning or, you know, sort timing. of the timing of it, timing of it, front, front loading, back loading, that sort of thing. Um, and if we're talking about the context of muscle hypertrophy, yes, it's got less importance than, um, than protein, but okay. So, so here's the thing about, um, carb timing. There's some literature showing that lifting capacity is compromised when let's say you skip breakfast. Um, versus having some sort of mixed macronutrient meal that happens to be high in carbohydrate, uh, lifting capacity is greater in that case. Um, there's not a whole lot of literature on that, but anecdotally, you can talk to, to 10 trainees at, at a pretty high level and you'll get all kinds of feedback uh, regarding the amount of carbs they have or not prior to lifting. And so it's 
it is very rare for people who whose main goal is to either get largely like hugely muscular it's very rare for them to just be training stone cold fasted um lifting lifting wise and so practically speaking if you have some sort of mixed macronutrient meal with some level of carbohydrate in it within i want to say within one to two hours prior to lifting um then you would probably safeguard yourself from some of the performance compromises that a completely fasted lifter would would feel in that in that respect but at the same time you don't need to just slam 100 grams of carbs immediately post workout and we may have we may have talked to this talked about this uh during the last episode about the whole anabolic window thing where the paradigm is to uh slam quickly absorbed protein and carbohydrates as soon as possible after training so you don't miss the window so that that model is, has pretty much been debunked by the fact that lifters are typically in a in a fed state for most of the day anyway and so this distribution this constant dosing of um protein carbohydrates fats through throughout multiple meals in the day it kind of uh, negates the need to hyper focus on the uh, immediate post exercise period and the carbohydrate thing is interesting because we used to think that you needed to consume carbohydrate with protein post exercise in order to maximize muscle protein synthesis um but then a, a several experiments were done showing that when you have enough protein um you don't need to add carbohydrate to it in order to maximize muscle protein synthesis and but then the question became okay well what about net muscle protein balance don't we want to inhibit muscle protein breakdown maximally as well and so the problem with that is is it's tough to measure muscle protein breakdown it's it's invasive and it's a pain in the butt and so we just kind of default to measuring muscle protein synthesis because it's a lot easier to do and there's this presumption that um especially in in a, in a protein fed state post exercise that muscle protein synthesis out it it has like a four times higher magnitude than muscle protein breakdown anyway at at in the fed state and so it's sort of a um a relatively reliable proxy for net anabolism not not looking at muscle protein breakdown but the the question was still hanging so in 2015 one of my friends juha homi h u l m i he did the first and to my knowledge still the only study comparing um a sizable dose of protein with protein co-ingested with a sizable amount of carbohydrate post exercise uh in lifters and um running the experiment and and, and so this was this was in resistance trainees i i do believe that they were resistance trained as well if i'm not mistaken um just define that for my listeners just define what resistance trained means when we're talking about this in context of studies mm, yeah yeah so so when we're looking at untrained subjects in a study it's people who have no lifting experience no exercise formal exercise experience especially in in the context of of muscle hypertrophy no lifting experience and they'll also um 
allow people to be recruited if they let's say they have not touched a weight in at least six months so they're significantly detrained and so um but yeah that's usually what defines an untrained subject is no no lifting experience um within at least six months ish to a year and then trained subjects and by the way these definitions are always arbitrary <laughs> and they're always just kind of picked out of convenience but um, in research trained subjects means that they typically have had some resistance training experience and they usually do the cutoff at about six months on the low end um, all the way up to like one to two years i've seen studies saying okay you have to have at least one to two years of lifting experience to in order to participate in this study because we're trying to track adaptations in individuals who are not just fresh off the couch. And um, usually it's it's better to use trained subjects instead of untrained subjects, because when you use untrained subjects, they'll get results on kind of anything you throw at them. You know, they'll get the proverbial, in quotes, newbie gains. And when you're trying to compare- the- with, with, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> with a z (laughs) yeah (laughs) so they'll they'll get those gains um no matter what and when you're trying to compare two different protocols or you're trying to compare a experimental condition with a control condition and you're trying to look at fine differences they they often get washed out when you use untrained subjects because the newbie gains are so robust that they kind of mask any potential differences between the experimental agent and the the control condition. So, so yeah, that's, that's the whole trained versus untrained thing. And so, yeah, what, what Juha Homi and colleagues found out was whether carbohydrate, and it was like a good amount of carbohydrate added to the, the protein dose was about 37, 30 to 40 grams. So it was a big enough protein dose. And the maltodextrin dose was like 40 to 50 ish, I believe mm-hmm. um, that they added to that. So they compared protein by itself uh, versus protein co-ingested with a sizable amount of highly glycemic carbohydrate post-exercise, just as that that model would dictate. And they found no significant differences in muscle size and strength gains over a period of, uh, I believe it was eight, eight, 10 to 12 weeks or so What was the study. And that kind of closed the, kind of closed the door on the concept that, okay, we need to position carbs with the protein post-exercise to maybe not, you know, maximize muscle protein synthesis, but at least hedge our bets towards minimizing muscle protein breakdown. And lo and behold, we didn't see any, we didn't see anything exciting with with doing that compared to not doing it. And is that Um, because the MPS is so, you said, you know, it's four times, we have sort of this four X muscle protein versus the net muscle protein breakdown? Or is that because there's another mechanism like gluconeogenesis that might be happening with the 30 to 40 gram bolus of protein? Or do we know? Um, I I would say that it's because we can max out net muscle protein gains with a high enough dose of protein. I I think we can max out that, that difference um, between muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown with protein alone uh, when the dose is high enough. And so the, that dose would likely be that maximal dose. And I know that we talked about this last time, that maximal dose would be somewhere between 
uh, 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, which in imperial terms is right around 0.2-ish to 0.25 grams per pound of body weight. Um, that would be the protein dose that appears to maximize the short-term anabolic effect or maximize the muscle protein synthesis response, net muscle protein synthesis response. Um, and so, yeah, there's uh, protein kind of does the, the heavy lifting on its own as far as that short-term MPS response goes. And if there's enough total calories in the diet, enough total carbs in the diet, and of course enough protein in the diet, then the shifting around and the positioning of carbohydrate is best left to pretty much individual preference as, as far as positioning it for, for maximizing muscle hypertrophy. And um, it doesn't have to be a very specific configuration of the carbohydrate timing in order to do that. And um, I want to throw in like a couple of caveats there. Like if somebody happens to train like twice a day <laughs> and uh, but it is a little bit far-fetched because somebody who trains twice a day doesn't necessarily have hypertrophy goals, but let's say they do train twice a day and let's say they do end up tapping out glycogen or close to it in, in a given muscle group earlier in the day and they're going to train again where they're basically recruiting those muscles again and within the same day, then it can help to make sure that you have a sizable amount of carbohydrate post-exercise so you can expedite glycogen resynthesis and have them ready to go later on in the day. But that is kind of a far-fetched scenario. Yeah, that's not unless the... You're that's looking, not the... Unless you're looking at an endurance athlete, you know what I mean? But we're talking about, right. you know, we're talking about gains here. Yeah, exactly. And so it actually, I wanted to bring up intermittent fasting because this is probably the most common question that I'm asked is should I train fasted or should I train fed? And, mm -hmm. you know, my answer is often, you know, you need to train when you can train. <laughs> so yeah. like that's the, yeah. that's always going to be the best answer. I do mm -hmm. both. So during the week I have to wake up early, get to the gym early so that I can get my lift in and then be back home to, you know, get my kids ready for school and all the things. But on the weekends, I have a lot more flexibility. So I have breakfast and I wait, you know, an hour or whatever it is. And then we go to the gym and then it's usually a higher volume workout because I have, you know, a bit more time. Um, but there, again, with this sort of, you know, I, I wanted you to come back on because, you know, your whole, your whole paradigm and body of work is around flexible dieting. But I think with flexible dieting comes flexible thinking uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I, I think it's really important to, all the type A's that are listening because we tend to be all or nothing. It's like, well, if I can't, if I can't do it faster than just forget it, I'm just not going to do it. Or if I can't do it fed, then I, if I can't do it properly, you know, I'm just not going to do it. And mm -hmm. I, the way that I look at it is when you can get it in is when you should do it. Um, mm -hmm. Is it optimal to do it fasted for me? Probably not. I know that I probably would have a lot more muscle um, if I could, eat, but I don't want to eat at five in the morning. Like I don't, I don't want, I usually put some little, I put some, what do I put? I put EAAs and, and some collagen in my, in my drink, even though I know collagen is not anabolic, I just put it in. So that's when I remember to take care of my skin. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I, and then I eat when I can eat. Right. So what, what are your thoughts on working out fasted, uh, versus fed? Are we missing, um, 
are, you know, if someone's overly fasting, are we, are there opportunity gaps there for, uh, you know, MPS and, and muscle remodeling? Whenever I get, get asked the question, I'm thinking, okay, so what's the population and what's the goal and what's at stake here? You know, how, how, what level are we talking about here? Are we talking about looking, looking decent for, you know, the family reunion, or are we talking about placing first at, at a national level competition? And so the answers would, would kind of vary. Um, but, you know, generally speaking for a resistance training bout that is not endurance oriented, what I mean by that is something that doesn't approach or exceed 90 minutes and certainly encroach upon like the two hour mark, which some, some people's training is that way, you know, whether, whether we're looking at just really kind of obsessively high level folks in a given sport that involves um, strength training and conditioning. Most people's resistance training bouts genuinely don't cross much over an hour. Um, And so if that is indeed the case, then Op- optimally, you wouldn't go in there stone stone cold fast. I mean, even even you throw down some, you know, some some nitrogen matter there, some aminos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're you're at least amino fed, yeah. And and the collagen is in there too, which is fine. It was cool. I mean, I take collagen myself. I think it's, you know, I think there's enough evidence to point to the the benefits of of collagen supplementation. Um, so. It is a personal preference thing. It's almost like if you don't have time to have something pre-exercise and you're not willing to throw down a scoop or two of protein powder, which is what I would recommend, then, okay, no big deal. Just make it up after the training bout. And um, there actually is is research showing us a stronger anabolic signaling response, not necessarily muscle protein synthesis, but these anabolic signaling molecules activity is actually higher. Um, when someone is trained in a fasted state, cause the body is kind of panicking for like a growth rebound afterwards. Um, and so anabolic signaling is higher with that, um, in response to that, that post-exercise meal after a fasted training bout compared to after a fed training bout, but then you strike a compromise there because, with a lot of folks there, the amount of work output they can do, the amount of reps they can do for a given number of sets gets compromised when yes. they are training overnight fasted versus training after um, a, a full-size meal after like one to two hours where they just kind of set and, and kind of ready to perform. But yeah, if your training bout is not 90 minutes plus, you can you can still grow. You can still get away with fasted training if that's how your schedule works, and and or if that's how you prefer it. And and I do know a few people who train fasted whose goals are such that it's perfectly fine for them. You know, they're not trying to win contests for muscular size. You know, they they're just trying to look a certain way, and they've achieved that look. They're trying to perform a certain way, and they've achieved that. And so, therefore, the, their personal preference really is what kind of guides their lifestyle and their quality of life, and they're doing just fine. So, yeah. It, now, if you if you ask me, hey, I, I want to do, like, the best possible um, 
training performance and it's got endurance elements in there. And I train for 90 minutes real hard. And I want to be able to push through even the last, like, I want the quality of training through the last half hour of, of my workout to be as, as, you know, as good or almost as good as the, as the beginning part, then I would be like, yeah, well, you know, fasted training is not necessarily going to, going to be the ticket for that. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Uh, just so we're clear on fat loss, the ability um, to tr- when you're training fasted, there's no. My understanding is that there's no difference in terms of fat loss or you know oxidation, let's say, uh, versus someone who is training fasted versus fed. So you know the way that I understand it is yes, when you're fasted, you're drawing on your. There's more oxidation sort of during the activity, but then if you're if you are following it with a meal or someone who is training fasted, they will see that there's a, there's almost a phasic shift, let's say in the beta oxidation, um, or the, the fat burning capacity of that individual sort of that's moved later on to the, in the day. So I just, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between fat. Cause women are like, I need to lose fat. Should I do my cardio or yeah. should I do my lifting session fasted? And I, mm-hmm. and you can cor- redirect me here if I'm, if mm-hmm. I'm incorrect. Um, but it seems like there's no, net difference, let's say, over a 24-hour period of training fasted versus fed. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that's that's really well put. And um I'm gonna try not to mess up how eloquently and simply you put that by <laughs> by following up. But so my colleagues and I we we did a study in 20 14-ish, 2014 Sometimes it's all a blur. <laughs> um, we did a study and it wasn't a fasted lifting versus fed lifting studies. There's almost, there's gosh, there's almost no studies like that. There's just like maybe one or two. Um, and they do show that fed lifting does yield better performance. But um, this, w- we did a study on, on uh, trainees who did fasted cardio, versus fed cardio so overnight fasted and then you perform the cardio like um moderate intensity low to moderate intensity for about 50 minutes um in the in quotes fat burning zone i mean we compared that with uh doing cardio in a fed state like right right after um the equivalent of of a mixed macronutrient meal uh and we ran the experiment for four weeks and we measured body composition at the beginning and body composition at the end. And uh, th- these were in non-lifting women. 
So untrained uh, college-aged women and no, no significant differences in, in everybody kept their muscle amazingly. Um, well, that's because I, I set protein at 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't make the caloric deficit terribly aggressive, but everybody lost fat. Everybody kept muscle. No differences between the fed cardio group and the fasted cardio group. And to my knowledge, it's still the only study to date that's looked at controlled hypocaloric conditions, uh, comparing fed cardio with fasted cardio. So we, we, we found that, well, after all, at least in that population, it doesn't matter. But then like you mentioned, Stephanie, why would there be a difference if we're looking at the same amount of calories consumed at the end of 24 hours and the same, same macronutritional breakdown between the groups? Like, why would there be a net difference in fat balance? And, and so, but we just wanted to make sure what, is there some magic to training fasted that might occur? And we were open to the idea because that was the legend and the lore of, of, you know, of, of many generations back, like the, the, the magic of fasted cardio, we just wanted to test it out. But, um, kind of like you mentioned, it's like when you train, what, whatever you're fueled on is, is pretty much what you're going to be burning. So whatever you ingest is what's going to fuel the activity. So, um, let's imagine, you know, somebody eats a, a high carb meal, they're going to be using those carbs during training. If somebody like ingests a stick of butter prior to training, <laughs> they're going to be burning a lot of fat during, <laughs> during their training. And right. so, um, if, if somebody trains fasted, then they're going to be oxidizing m- more fatty acids than they would if they were, you know, if they had some sort of meal. But um, that doesn't necessarily say much about 24 hour, the balance between um, fat oxidation versus fat storage in a 24 hour period. Because when you train fasted, yes, you do in quotes, burn more fat during the training bout. But if you compare a, another person who trains in the fed state, but both, you know, both people are eating the exact same thing by the end of the day, then the fasted training person is going to burn more fat during the training bout. The fed training person is going to burn more fat after the bout in the later part of the day. And it all comes out the same in the wash by 24 hours. And so the, the take home practical message from that is do what you personally feel best on for what, what you personally prefer, because then you'll, you're more likely to, to execute. <laughs> you're more likely to carry that habit out and get it done. This is, the, this is more of a philosophical comment, but I think that sometimes we just, it's like a this sort of type a need to this this incessant need to perseverate on every single detail and you need to do it a hundred percent right or not at all i think in most cases is a deterrent to actually just doing something even if you're kind of doing it wrong or you're mm-hmm. not doing it you know quote unquote optimally i think um 
It's just get out there. It's okay to suck and it's okay to, it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to be a beginner and to learn. That's where all masters start. And I think that, um, at least my observation in my own recovery from being a type A uh, personality, it's you, there's this certain element of control. And that's why I think I field a lot of these questions like which, which one's better? Should I train fasted or fed? Should I do cardio fasted or fed? When do I take my carbohydrates first in the day, in the middle of the day, at the end of the, how much protein? And it, it's all this, uh, incessant sort of, um, it's like people are, are majoring in the minors, like just get to the gym lift. Mm -hmm. You're probably mm -hmm. going to not do it well, but just do something. And I promise you'll learn as you go. I like, I'm still learning and I've been yeah. doing it for a very long time. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a great way to approach it. Just mindset wise. And yeah, I agree with that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, creatine. Um, you recently, recently, uh, published a, a meta-analysis on the effect on muscle hypertrophy. Um, yeah. I'd love for you to describe, because I think some people were like, boo, <laughs> there, wasn't like a, <laughs> yeah. there wasn't like a big, you know, like creatine is going to magically save us all from everything. Um, but maybe you can, maybe you can describe the meta-analysis. Um, um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about regional versus, you know, versus systemic muscle hypertrophy um, as mm -hmm. well. And then some of the other I don't know. I don't want to call them off-label, but uh, other uh, other benefits, let's say, that it might have that it, that are mm -hmm. not just for body recomping and for strength. Yeah, our meta-analysis on creatine. Um, this is the one I did with Ryan Burke as the lead author, and we had um, a bunch of other good good folks on there in, in the research community: Brad Schoenfeld, Darren Kandow, uh, Max Coleman, uh, et al. We did a meta-analysis, the first one to look at regional muscle hypertrophy um, that's measurable by methods such as ultrasound and magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, um, Looking just looking at very muscle-specific uh, changes as a result of, of creatine supplementation. And, and usually, I mean, the, the vast majority of, of studies on, on measuring creatine's effects on body composition, look at net or gross changes in just lean mass and, and fat mass. And so we were able to just look specifically at the muscle component of lean mass. Um, because you know, there's still the mo the bone mass element to consider. There's still, um, there's intracellular water, extracellular water, and there's a, a bunch of other components, but we, we, we looked at muscle mass specifically and the big disappointment <laughs> was just such a tiny, um, a tiny increase in, in muscle mass as a result of, uh, of creatine supplementation. And, uh, I mean, the actual increases are, are really kind of, um, disappointing, two, really sad. 2%, I think it was 2% from the. Oh, not. that, that, that 2% would, would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even two. Oh man. <laughs> I mean, so, so here's, okay. So I'm going to start with the disappointing stuff and it is going to end well, it will end well. So the disappointing thing is that the increases in muscle thickness on average were like a 10th. I, 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 I hate to say, it, but yeah. Okay. So about about a 10th of a centimeter beyond placebo. Okay. So it, it was already, it was as high as 
0.16 centimeters beyond placebo in, in terms of increases in muscle thickness as a result of supplementing with creatine. And um, we have to understand that, that when we report these values, we're talking about the average of the group. So in, in this case, in this case of a meta-analysis, we're looking at multiple studies. And so um, the average of, of all the studies. And so certainly there were some higher values and even some lower values. So we're, we're reporting the mean increase. And some and of these are going to be untrained. Trained, like, so, yeah. That's right. That's right. And that that's a huge point that you bring up because in our meta-analysis, there were 10 studies uh, that we drew data from and only one of the 10 studies involved resistance trained subjects there was another study that involved recreationally trained subjects but i mean their resistance training experience was minimal like uh, i believe but far less than um like it was it was in, in, to the order of weeks instead of months um as far as resistance training experience so so um Really, uh, in reality, we had one out of 10 studies involving resistance trained subjects. And so the hypothesis is that trained subjects could, could possibly get more benefit out of creatine use than untrained subjects. Uh, but regardless of whether you're trained or untrained, there are significant uh, increases in strength and there are significant increases in lean body mass. And so body water would come up. Um, why exactly? We didn't detect much, um, much changes at the muscle level. That's a little bit of a mystery. Um, I, I personally would chalk it up to maybe limitations of, of the instruments that we used or the fact that most of the studies were uh, most of the subjects were untrained hmm. but on the bright side of of um creatine use and and this is a reason why i would still recommend um creatine use is that even in highly trained subjects the strength increases in the creatine users are substantially greater than in the uh, non-creatine users or the or the control group, so we're we're talking about a, dif a difference of a twenty percent gain in in strength in creatine users, even like highly resistance trained creatine users, twenty percent increases in in strength versus a twelve percent increase in in strength in the control group. So this is across multiple studies. And so that has a significant advantage as a result of creatine use. And in creatine users, this is where the 2% um, value comes in. It's very typical for creatine users to gain 2% of their starting body weight. So um, after a loading phase. So whether you load, whether you take one week to load using the, the loading dose protocol of 20 to 25 grams a day for about a week, or whether you just ride a maintenance dose out until you're fully loaded, which takes about 30 days. Once you're loaded, it's very common to gain 2% of your starting body weight as lean body mass. And so a 150 pound person would gain like three pounds, let's say. 
of um of of body weight and this would show up as um as lean mass and and it's visually apparent in almost everybody i've personally observed on on creatine you can kind of tell that what they looked like pre-creatine versus post-creatine they just look more jacked they look more full um and then you can take those strength gains and ride them out to eventual uh muscular size gains regardless of of your your training status so even though we investigated this question of how does creatine affect specifically you know the muscle component of lean mass and we saw these tiny tiny changes the caveats are untrained subjects <laughs> and um untrained subjects so that's that's like the big caveat really really point one untrained subjects (laughs) point two c point one (laughs) that's right yeah basically yes and what about non-responders can there be you know do we have non-respond people who just don't respond to creatine supplementation is that possible yeah yeah you know you're you're more on top of this my my meta-analysis than i am actually um that that was one of the other major limitations is that um this is research by Greenhalf and colleagues back in the mid '90s, where they actually assessed who who responds to creatine and who doesn't, and it, it they it basically comes down to this like twenty to thirty percent, so a full like almost like right about a quarter of the population responds very poorly to creatine, like they barely respond to it. So creatine non-responders, I mean, there's a formal definition of it to like less than, um, I believe it's 10 millimoles um, per per liter of of, uh, fat-free, I'm sorry, 10 millimoles per kilogram of uh, fat-free mass, less than that kind of gain in muscle creatine constitutes what would, what we can call a non-responder. And so... Um, about 20 to 30% of people who take creatine are non-responders. Uh, but we can still say, you know, that, hey, 70 to 80% of people who use creatine will get great results. Okay. But these poor 20 to 30% who don't respond, there, there's um, a couple possible reasons there. Um, number one, they could have a, a a high initial level of create of muscle creatine of saturation so yeah. yeah so if you take somebody we can use um let's say sean baker for example who eats four pounds of meat a day uh he's probably not going to get much of a response from adding an extra five grams of creatine um a day to his diet because he's probably getting like eight to 10 grams a day of of creatine from the meat in his diet alone. And there seems to be kind of a a, a plateauing effect with creatine dosing that's right around, oh, five-ish, possibly eight-ish grams in in larger individuals um, per day that that you get the maximal size and strength gain effects out of creatine. And so if your diet is already pretty dang high in creatine, then additional supplemental creatine is not going to do a whole lot. Uh, and then there's differences in, in fiber type distribution across individuals that might affect people's response to creatine. Um, but the fact of the matter is our meta-analysis and m- most of the studies in 
these create most creatine studies and include certainly the ones that we included they don't assess for response versus non-response in the participants of the studies and so that is kind of a question mark as well and that and that's one of the caveats too so um the bottom line is i i still would recommend creatine because you're still going to gain lean mass you're still going to gain strength and um it's just that we oddly found a disappointingly small amount of muscle thickness gains and uh muscle cross-sectional area gains using these methods that are supposedly more precise than just measuring gross or net changes in lean body mass let's talk about some of the other um benefits that that creatine has so you know as a a trained chiropractor, one of the things that is very exciting to me is the effects that it has on uh, bones, joints, uh, certainly uh, glycemic uh, control. You know, when we talk about um, uh, metabolic flexibility and, and fuel use, um, can you talk a little bit about some of the benefits of using creatine? And mm-hmm. the other question I'll, I'll sort of tack on to this is you, you mentioned 20 to 25 grams, let's say for a week. Uh, so you're saturating the muscle at about, that's somewhere around 140 to, if I could do math, 150 uh, grams of creatine or five grams, you said maintenance dose over the course of a month, so five grams a day. Do we cycle that? Do we go on and off of it? Is it a continuous, like what is the be- what are best practices for creatine use as well? Sure, sure. Okay, so the first part of the question is that um, creatine is a multifaceted a beneficial supplement. And we're talking everything from the level of the the brain to uh, the musculoskeletal level to the the metabolic level. And so creatine in neurological health, that's an active area of study right now. And um, it does actually seem to help with things like cognition, especially in people with um, who are who are not, who don't have optimal nutrition, who um, who are running on like a low to no creatine um, intake, and who are also potentially compromised co- cognition wise, is showing a lot of promise for helping that. Um, creatine also has been shown to help with with joint health, um, joint function. Um, non-muscle lean tissue function. Uh, Creatine also has been shown to increase bone density. And this is through direct as as well as indirect means. So just helping the body perform better and from a lifting capacity is going to have indirect transfer to to bone health. Um, And creatine has also been shown even, even to help with with pregnant moms <laughs> or like like in in healthy pregnancy i mean there's there's a lot of uh, metabolic demands that are increased as a result of of the baby and um it's been at least hypothesized that creatine could help in in that whole anabolic process of of um the growth of of the child and so it, creatine just happens to be one of those you can almost call it conditionally essential uh, compounds that that uh, 
we can either get from the diet or we we can supplement with it. Um, but I think that, I don't know, that, that might be putting it a little bit too liberally because there's a lot of people who live ripe, long, healthy lives without supplementing creatine in the diet and without getting a whole lot of it in, in their diets. But it's one of those things that you could choose to optimize health with. As you were talking about pregnancy, um, you know, one of the things that I know to be true about creatine is it does help with glycemic control. So I wonder, and I don't know if there's probably no studies in this because you could never get an IRB for it, but I, I wonder with individuals who are more susceptible to uh, GD, where we have, let's say, gestational diabetes, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder um, if creatine supplementation would help in any way, um, either maybe not prevent, but at least help to manage uh, someone who is dealing with uh, gestational uh, diabetes as well. I don't know if you are familiar with, or if you know of any studies that have been, that have ever looked at that. I don't even, I don't know if you can study pregnant mm-hmm. women in any, in any capacity um, yeah, versus yeah. not supplement, but yeah. You can make the hypothesis, you know, I, I mean, yes, true. I mean, it would be tough to get the, you know, ethics approval for, for that kind of study. But, um, but creatine does, it it increases insulin independent muscle glucose uptake and it increases insulin sensitivity. And so therefore it has been speculated that creatine would be an effective supplement for the management of, um, of diabetes. Um, adult onset diabetes specifically. And so why wouldn't it help with gestational diabetes? Because we're talking about similar mechanisms at work, similar pathologies at work here. So yeah, um, so yeah I, I would be pretty uh, optimistic about that application of it. Let's, um, since we're talking about an ultra processed food. Let's, let's move to ultra processed foods for a moment. Right. Um, that's my, that's my little nerd joke. Um, because I, I actually, in all honesty, uh, and transparency, I don't actually know where I stand on ultra processed foods. I think that too much of them probably bad, probably upregulating or, you know, dysregulating, we'll say appetite regulation centers. Um, mm-hmm. but specifically, uh, where I want to lead this conversation is, is seed oils. And, uh, I hear a lot, currently, there's a lot of, we'll say, noise uh, about seed oils. Um, It does seem to be spoken about as this like single monolithic species. Uh, It's like just seed oils. It's just one thing. It's just just, just this one thing. Um, And I don't know where I stand on it because there's a lot of people that I know and respect uh, that talk about seed oils as if it is the thing that if you get cancer, it's because you had seed oils. Um, And then I was saying to you, sort of before we officially started got going, like I don't see that uh, in human data and in, in the human study. So I don't actually know what to think about it. It's probably too much of it is probably bad. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What, do, mm-hmm. what do you think? Help, help me understand why mm-hmm. people are making, a, why is the signal, let's say, around seed yes. oils so loud, particularly right now? Okay, so people get emotional about the seed oils thing. And it's because it's associate people associate um, seed oils with these big, scary threats like, uh, like cancer, heart disease, and diabetes and all that stuff. But um, I think that what you mentioned that we can't 
just look at seed oils as this single unit that you can lump everything in there, just like you can't look at dairy as just this single monolithic uh, unit that you can lump everything in there. It's like mm-hmm. saying, saying seed oils are bad is the equivalent of saying dairy is bad. You know, it, it, what particular type of dairy are we talking about? They have different effects. Like there's quite a big difference between um, the effects of butter versus the effects of, let's say, yogurt, you know, but they're both dairy. And so just because in, um, you know, diners uh, across middle America, they're reusing and just using for frying over and over again, let's say corn oil and, and, and a mix of corn oil or soybean oil, let's say. That doesn't mean that you should avoid flax seeds, chia seeds, pumpkin seeds, um, you know, and, and any any type of uh, seed that you can think of, sunflower seeds. Um, people start sesame, sesame seeds, se- sesame seeds, ses- sesame seeds, <laughs> sesame oil, yeah. um, canola. It's like just because canola oil may be used in some restaurant establishments over and over to fry food that doesn't mean that using canola oil for cooking at home is is bad and and i would even take it a step further it's like okay yes using um high heated uh seed oils for frying over and over again of course that's going to that that's going to be bad but what are you comparing that to you know what oils are what oils do you propose that that you know if you switch that oil switch that canola oil out with let's say uh palm oil or heck butter or lard you're still going to get as bad or worse health effects so why are you singling out you know why are you like cherry picking the seed oils for for these these bad effects it doesn't make sense and when you compare because okay like the the proposed mechanism is the oxidation products of of seed oils as a result of repeated frying and stuff. Um, well, what's going to happen there? Okay, well, they, it's been shown that that like highly oxidized oils can do X, Y, and Z. Okay, so the the focus here would be adverse changes in in blood lipids that would kind of start people on this this path towards um, atherogenesis and and cardiovascular disease. Okay, cool. Let, let, now let's imagine we just use lard for this. Okay, less oxidation products, but you're still going to adversely affect blood lipids more directly as a result of, let's say, using butter and lard for cooking as opposed to canola oil for cooking. So you're getting to the same destination just through different pathways. Um, and well, you can take it a step further. It's, it's like, let's look at the literature let's look at the human data on vegetable oils versus butter and lard the the two you know main animal fats that that we're cooking with overwhelmingly and and very consistently the health outcomes are better for the vegetable oils compared to the uh saturated fat uh based oils and fats used for cooking and so you just have to take a step back and look at the evidence and and 
you know, ask yourself, okay, so what am I basing my beliefs on? Um, and then a lot of times when people don't like the evidence, they will default to it's big vegetable oil funding the studies, follow the money, you know, big canola is funding the studies. Okay. Well, do you really think there's no big butter, big dairy, big lard? <laughs> of course there is, <laughs> you know, do you really, you really don't think the beef industry and the egg industry is funding all the major studies for that? Of course they are. So somebody's got to fund the research. So we can't just cop out and say, ah, oh, look at who's funding it. Because if you just say, ah, oh, look who's funding it. Are you willing to throw out all of the positive olive oil research because big olive oil funded it? Well, you better be if you want to be internally consistent with your line of logic. And so um, the evidence is what it is. I personally, I, I, I like the taste of olive oil much better than um, most oils, than canola oil. I, I like it better than canola oil. I like it better than corn oil or any of the other oils. Um, I mean, there, there's a meta-analysis that was recently put out um, comparing canola oil and olive oil on changes in blood lipids and canola oil actually outperformed olive oil for, you know, LDL lowering and um, the, just changes oh, in the wow. blood lipid profile. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It outperformed olive oil, but you know what? I'm not going to switch to canola oil for that because it's probably not going to make any meaningful difference in, in a lifetime or two, whether I'm using canola oil or olive oil. Because I'm I'm just not drowning my foods in oils anyway. Um, actually, I, I do love olive oil, and I do kind of drown my foods in olive oil sometimes. But um, but yeah, it's about the evidence, Stephanie, and it's about people just dropping their egos, and it's about people considering whether or not they're listening to internet fairy tales, or whether they're just taking a hard honest look at the evidence and not copping out to, oh, who's funding the study, you know, because that's a self-defeating bias is writing, just writing off research because of who funded it. You're going to have to write off all the nutritional <laughs> studies that you hang your hat on if you wanted to take that route. The other thing I've heard you talk about, which I appreciate is this, um, we'll call it logical fallacy, uh, this sort of appeal to nature. Well, our four mothers and forefathers never had the capacity to consume canola oil or corn oil or soybean oil. So if something is altered from its natural state, then it must be bad for you. And that's sort of how I led into this conversation with creatine because it's, you know, I mean, you find creatine naturally in, in animal products, but as a supplement, like how do you think it got into that tub, you know, <laughs> in, in Whole Foods or wherever you're, you know, it, it's an artificial product. Um, so I, I, I wanted to, you know, bring that up and sort of pair these topics together because, you know, cancer is also a natural, it's, a, it's also a natural process. Uh, it's also organic. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for you, right? So there's there's this, we'll call it fallacy uh, in thinking that you're describing. And then I've seen you also talk about this appeal to nature, I think is mm -hmm. your, how you describe it, um, yeah. which I, which I, which I like, if it's organic, then it must be better for you. And it's like, well, ammonium, you know, is, is organic. It's not, you know, that's not good for you either. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, mm. that's right. That's right. I mean, there, there is some wisdom and there is some benefits to going natural when, when you can, but, um, I think that it can be treacherous to deny 
certain aspects of technology that um, enhance human quality of life. Yeah. Uh, And I think it translates to multiple domains, whether it be medicine or whether it be nutrition and food technology, uh, whether it be like, you know, travel technology. (laughs) Um, And it it just transfers to multiple domains. And it it, it can be a double-edged sword. Food technology can be a double-edged sword. Uh, I think that with... um, with certain types of foods or certain food groups, uh, there are only it's kind of a minority of applications where the more processed it is, the better type of thing. Like, like for example, um, you talk about food refining and ultra processing and stuff like that. Generally speaking, with fat and carbohydrates, processing and refinement is is not necessarily the best thing. Um, but of course, there's going to be exceptions. Like with carbohydrate, an ultra endurance athlete is not necessarily going to be, you know, chomping on a, chomping on a a like a sweet potato or an apple during their race type thing. Um, we've got food technology for that. We've got drinkable, highly um, easily digestible carbohydrates for for that sort of thing. Um, but generally speaking ultra process ultra processing of foods is not great especially when you're looking at carbohydrate um now there's always nuance to keep in mind because the exception of ultra processing would be protein and protein powders i mean those guys are highly engineered um wonders of food technology um but they're kind of a kind of a cheat code for achieving health and longevity and performance. Uh, so, Hey, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. People, people rip on ultra processed foods, but there happens to be an array of foods in the protein department that accomplish, um, really positive things health wise. And, um, and it kind of reminds me of the, the topic of artificially sweetened stuff. So, there's a, a difference between somebody who will drink a dozen cans of diet soda a day. Um, in their case, hey, they, they, they're probably not doing the best that they possibly can for their health um, because of a number of reasons, um, possibly including maybe the amount of artificial sweetener they're taking in or, or maybe the amount of caffeine they're taking in with each one of those cans of diet soda. But you look at the other person who has a protein shake or two a day. All right. Well, their protein powder is artificially sweetened. But um, number one, it's highly debatable whether that artificial sweetener is doing anything negative at all, especially in that dose. And number two, it's enabling this person to optimize their protein intake to have that perhaps that protein um shake or meal or whatever it is to double as as a dessert instead of an actual dessert that they would get and um the convergence of those benefits would result in favorable changes in health and body composition and the maintenance of that so yeah it, it um i mean it, it can be there's different things to, to talk about with with this topic i think i i share your view in that we want to try and minimize, let's say, 
uh, you don't want to be, you know, throwing back jugs and jugs of, of canola oil or, you know, the, at the end of the day, you don't want to use any of the oil. Maybe let's say these midtown diners that you mentioned, uh, have mm-hmm. been using all day long. Um, and the same is true, as you mentioned with, you know, the diet Cokes, if you're having a case of Cokes, let's say a day versus like the protein powder, I think that there's different outcomes there. Um, where, where do you fall on? And I get this question and to be honest, I feel like it's a bit out of, you know, I can study it, but it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. Um, where do you fall on the non-nutritive sweeteners like the aspartames? And I know there's different categories of them. So we have like the sucralose, mm-hmm. the saccharins, the, and then you have this sort of newer category or maybe just newer to me, this, you know, allulose as more of a, uh, a sweetener. Where do, you, where do you fall in terms of looking at non-nutritive sweeteners, choices for yourself, or, and what does the, the data indicate in terms of human safety? Uh, and what is, when we're thinking about in the context of, you know, holism let's say like the 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 net effect uh, on the individual is it net positive net neutral net negative artificial sweeteners are so i mean the doses necessary to achieve what they achieve are are, are so minuscule i mean it's almost like it's it's uh it's more dangerous taking a walk in the la air <laughs> than than drinking a diet soda um so uh it's just i mean the danger of it is just way way overblown and you bring up a good point that artificial sweeteners are diverse in in their biological effects so something like for example example stevia and the the steviol glycosides you know that kind of family there's a an array of potential therapeutic effects of, of of stevia and it it's it's fascinating i i I looked at this stuff and it's like dude this is almost like a almost like a medicinal type of sweetener (laughs) and and so um on the other hand you have something like saccharin which has shown to which has been shown to uh cause unfavorable changes in gut microbiome and they're linking these changes to a reduction in glucose control when they fed high doses to rats and also high doses to humans in in a week-long study by Suez and colleagues a few years back. And so um, that kind of raised a bit of concern about saccharin because this hasn't been hasn't been seen in in other artificial sweeteners. Um, but then then the the question becomes, okay, so how relevant? is the potential harm of high dose saccharin. Where are you going to get saccharin from other than the pink packets at your your local uh, diner? And the answer is you're really going to have a tough time finding products sweetened with saccharin. And you're going to have a hard time overdosing on on these products unless you just really take down seven packets of of, uh, the pink the seven pink packets into your coffee or something but they're also like a hundred times i can't remember the number but it's like 60 70 times sweeter than sugar like you it would yeah. be impossible to take seven packets <laughs> well, that, of that was the dose well. yeah that was the equivalent dose that they gave the you know the rodents and the humans in, in suez at all um i think it was 20 i forget it was in the mid mid 2010s that they did this study but um a few years after that, more recently, they compared 
um, saccharin, sucralose, aspartame, and possibly ACK or some ACK. Um, they compared four sweet, no, oh, and actual sugar, sugar. I believe that was the fourth uh, comparator. And they compared the effects on um, body weight. And saccharin actually did not help with um, prevent increases in, in body weight. And so saccharin was the poorest performer of the artificial sweeteners in terms of um, changes in body composition, as well as that earlier study where it showed that it potentially screwed up glycemic control at high doses. And so we see a repetition of concern surrounding saccharin. So we can say, um, at least tentatively, that of the artificial sweeteners, saccharin could maybe be the one that you you want to avoid or minimize um but you know the <laughs> the in the food industry listens to the audience and so saccharin has been phased out mostly out of out of commercial existence except from the for those little pink packets um aspartame there's been an uproar about um aspartame because it's got enough bad press in the lay media that people stopped buying aspartame containing products. So the food industry responded, okay, it's kind of hard to find aspartame now. Um, and so what we're left now with like, uh, we're, we're left with sucralose, uh, stevia, ACE-K. Um, what the sugar alcohols, like the erythritols, the sugar and alcohols, the xylitol, <laughs> right. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. right. Erythritols. And, and um, yeah, the sugar alcohols and we got monk fruit, in there as well, yeah. uh, monk fruit extract. Yeah. And so all of those, all of those are fair game. I mean, they, they all have good safety profiles. Um, erythritol has gotten some bad press recently from just kind of a, uh, a frustrating study that showed mm -hmm. essentially that people with, um, cardiovascular diseases and major cardiac events happen to have, um, high blood erythritol levels. But the study was really kind of um, useless because it did not assess erythritol intake. It just drew an association between blood erythritol levels and major cardiac events. Um, and that it's impossible to draw any kind of meaningful and certainly no definitive conclusions from a study like that that does not assess erythritol intake. I mean, there's, there's erythritol present in an array of fruits and vegetables and stuff. And, and so, um, the erythritol scare is, is unwarranted. The artificial, uh, sweetener scare that the World Health Organization just put out. I mean, that's, that's unwarranted as well. It's, and, and this is because like you, there has to be some biologically plausible mechanism. For, for you to worry about that could lead to disease. So the, it, the artificial sweeteners have to affect some biological process that is a realistic causal link in the chain towards disease. And so when you look at large populations who have diabetes or and or heart disease, those populations have body weight related pathologies. And so we're talking about um, diabetes, diabetes, as it were, 
obesity and diabetes combined. And these populations will have a tendency to seek out diet products to a greater degree than non-disease populations, than healthy populations who are of normal body weight. And so the phenomenon of, in quotes, reverse causation is very real and can confound the results of these studies that look at populations who happen to be overweight and, and or have diabetes and or heart disease but who are also consuming um, products with artificial sweeteners at, at a higher, higher rate, higher amount than um, than other populations. And it's not, it's highly unlikely that the artificial sweeteners are causing heart disease and diabetes. It's much more likely that the opposite is true, is that the state of having diabetes and or heart disease and or obesity drives the seeking of um, artificial sweetener intake. But we can't determine this with observational research. So what we have to rely on are randomized controlled trials that can investigate the cause and effect relationships physiologically between artificial sweetener intake and clinical effects. And what we find consistently is that steps in the causal chain towards di diabetes and heart disease are essentially short-circuited by artificial sweetener use, especially when it's used in place of um, regular old sugar. So artificial sweetener use lowers total energy intake, it lowers body weight, lowers body fat, and the criticism there is that, okay, well, these trials are just short trials, okay? These are these randomized control trials, this is short-term data. And what about these observational studies looking at people for like 10 years, like, you know, 20 years, we're, we're looking at these disease endpoints with this observational data. And, and how can you rely on randomized control trials that just last a few weeks or a few months? And the answer to that is we need to look at both. We need to look at epidemiology and we need to look at controlled interventions. And if there is a convergence of results from both of those lines of evidence, then we can confidently say, aha, well, you know, artificial sweeteners are causing disease uh, processes at the intermediate level in randomized controlled trials. And they're resulting observationally in actual disease endpoints in observational studies and epidemiology. So we have a convergence of evidence from uh, these two types of, of uh, research, but we don't have that. We have a total split. And so, um, unfortunately, epidemiology is poorly controlled. You can run a, an epidemiological study for 10 years, but what they do is every few years, they have the subjects fill out a, um, a questionnaire and send it. And it's like, okay, cool. We, we got to do better in nutritional science. Come on. <laughs> we got to do better. I can't, if you asked me what I ate last week, I couldn't tell you what I, I mean, probably I could give you some rough estimate, but there's no way that it's accurate. Yeah. But, but that's, that's the problem, Stephanie. It's like, you know, the, the evidence against artificial sweeteners is, is so weak. I mean, yeah. yeah um, the randomized control trial evidence involves short periods of time and involves low numbers of, of subjects. But at least we're able to control the experiment and and see what see what happens physiologically, and it it just doesn't it just doesn't add up to um, you know 
cause for concern. Yeah, and obesity. Except for I maybe saccharin. Except for saccharin, yeah. And I would, you know, I would say as a comment generally, when we when we're talking about diet, you know, diabetes, obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, these are very complex uh, pathophysiologies. So to reduce it to well, it must be you know erythritol intake or you know whatever, I think is uh, you know short sighted at best and you know stupid at worst. I am a proponent of people getting or at least trying to get into the habit of drinking plain water um, and or and or sparkling water and or tea and things that don't contain artificial sweeteners. So um, I am a proponent of that. I would rather see people drinking plain water than getting hydrated from um, Diet Coke. <laughs> I would much rather yeah. I would much rather That's a that. reasonable position to take. Yeah. But I am not of the position that if you take somebody who is used to drinking let's say 3 cans of Coke a day and you bring them down to one to two diet versions of that a day and then they're consuming, you know, 500 calories less per day from from the added sugar. I think that's a good trade. And I think you kind of meet people where they where they're at and then you take it from there. Um obviously, you know, there's this pie in the sky u- utopian level of health that you can strive for. You know, you can you can certainly if you want to avoid all artificial sweeteners just to, to even avoid the hypothetical concerns. Hey man, more power to you but I wouldn't universalize that recommendation, especially to the degree that people are getting scared that their protein powder is, is sweetened with, with something, you know, I think that's when you start turning the corner to diminishing returns when you could yeah. be getting quite a bit of benefit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I wanted to get that out of the way and uh, yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me on again. And I think that there's still more to talk about, Stephanie. So, um, and for the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find my work at alanaragon.com. Um, I do have a monthly research review. That's my baby that I've been doing since 2008. And I think it's my best work and I'm super proud of it. Um, I have a book that I put out almost a year ago. It's called Flexible Dieting, but the title is misleading because it's just mainly, you know, evidence-based evidence-based nutrition for, for people who are into that kind of thing. Um, uh, I just got invited to be the keynote speaker for the obesity medicine association in their fall conference, uh, this year. So in, in October, Congratulations. so that that's going to, thank you. Thank you. That's going to be interesting. Um, so yeah, once again, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And like I said, there's probably going to be a part three. I didn't get to, again, I'm looking at my notes. We didn't get to uh, weight loss plateaus, perimenopause, menopause, oh. weeks, all the stuff. But we'll 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 save it for we'll save it for another time because uh, every time I talk to you, the conversation just gets richer and richer. So uh, thank you again for your time. And we'll talk to you soon. Oh, oh, the plateau one is so good. Okay, next time. Thank you so much, right. Dr. Stephanie. All right, we'll talk soon. 
All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.